Welcome to Sports, Clicks, and Politics with your hosts, Ben Husso and me, Sean Hannon. Welcome to episode 43 of Sports, Clicks, and Politics. Thank you again for joining us. Or joining me, I guess, right now, as you can see, Mr. Husung is uh, AWOL, uh, having uh, problems with the new venture, and uh, I don't think we'll be here for this show, so we'll see how much I can talk and see if I can fill an hour for you, but thank you for uh, tuning in. Please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to the video and the channel, and uh, hit that notification bell, and you'll be notified when we have new content. Uh, uh, today, I want to touch on a few things uh, that we have going on here in New York. First, sad day uh, here in the Syracuse. Uh, Syracuse Orange eliminated from the dance. No more madness here in March. So we will uh, uh, root on the rest of the teams here as they uh, whittle it down to the Final Four, I think, uh, through the next day or so here, and then uh, have the championship weekend next weekend. Syracuse will not be participating uh, it was a, it was fun. It's always fun to get through the first weekend. Uh, obviously, this is a uh, a team that with with a seed of eleven probably wasn't uh, expected to win either game. gave us uh, gave us a, a good extra uh, week of uh, fun basketball here. Um, and maybe you guys all saw the biggest news of the uh, the meme world at least for the last I don't know week or so. The Cargo ship Evergreen has been uh, freed from the Suez Canal. If you guys didn't see, there was this gigantic uh, cargo ship stuck sideways blocking the Suez Canal and uh, like some ridiculous amounts of uh, trade dollars being lost by the second. Uh, but that was freed this morning, I believe, or late last night or wherever that, whatever it works out, uh, uh, the time difference is there. But uh, I did see it moving uh, through the canal. So hallelujah. Uh, that, that meme is no longer in a... Uh, uh, usefulness, but I guess we'll uh, repurpose that at some point. Um, and my the the favorite couple of uh, the show here, uh, both in the news, Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein. Ghislaine Maxwell was denied bail for the third time, so thankfully she is still behind bars. Uh, we think uh, still no mugshot here. Still waiting for that. We'll see what happens. But uh, the judge says uh, no bail. So. Good for that. Uh, and then uh, if you didn't see that Jeffrey Epstein's uh, New York City mansion sold for $51 million, and that money immediately started being distributed, or I don't know about immediately, but at least I think is now being distributed to the victims. Um, so $51 million for the uh, biggest residential house in New York City uh, that he was given to for a dollar, we believe, from uh, Lex Wexner, who's still walking this earth free as a bird. So... Um, so interesting there in the uh, the 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 worst couple in the planet uh, that we know of anyway, and we all we talked about this last week that there had been uh, something like oh, over fifty days at the time uh, no press conference from Joe Biden. Well, that ended. We had uh, the President Biden uh, gave us his first press conference. It was uh, I think he did okay actually for expectations for I think people thought he was ducking the show for uh, for sixty five days I think it was. Uh, there were some hesitation moments there where I thought maybe he was breaking down, but I guess he pulled it out. Um, one bit of news that kind of snuck in there and nobody really talked about, but I guess we're not leaving Afghanistan anytime soon. Apparently that was something that uh, 
has been talked about, I don't know, since he was vice president, but apparently that's not going to happen. Um, so we got the first press conference. We'll see how that uh, plays out, for, out forward here. Also right here in New York, you guys all excited? Have you downloaded the Excelsior Pass, your vaccine passport app yet to your phone? So that when they need to show me your papers, you can uh, just whip out your phone and uh, show them your papers. This is a the Excelsior Pass. If you guys don't know, we did a little bit of break this on maybe two episodes ago. Um, this is the New York State's version of a vaccine passport where you will need to have either, you can, I guess, upload a vaccine uh, test or a vaccine that you have been vaccinated to this app, or you can uh, upload a, uh, a negative test somehow through this, through this app, and that's way it can allow you to get into some events. I think this is Cuomo's idea of somehow trying to, you know, replicate the, uh, the Bills game a little bit, but using this uh, mobile pass. Obviously, I think the uh, president has something, I've mentioned something about a national vaccine passport. Um, also not a good idea. Uh, can't imagine this is going to gain too much traction, uh, even unless they make it mandatory. And I, then I think there'll be a, somewhat of a revolt. Um, I do believe there's actually a protest in Albany this week uh, about the vaccine passport here and the Excelsior Pass. But anyway, for those of you who want it, you can get it. And uh, you know this may allow you to get into some events early on here that uh, others without the vaccine pass uh, are unable to attend. So... Um, hallelujah for New York state and it's uh vaccine passport. So, um, let's talk about a couple things. Speaking of, uh, New York state and Cuomo, did you guys see that, uh, apparently the newest, uh, I don't know if this is the newest one. Cause obviously I haven't paid attention to the news since I've been on the air, but apparently there's a scandal in the Cuomo administration every three hours. Uh, the la- the latest one being that, uh, apparently governor Cuomo had, uh, arranged his family members and top officials to be tested by top public health officials here in the state, even in the privacy of their own home, uh, while nursing homes were not getting those tests, right? So um, they had this, uh, let me pull up the article here. Um, uh, The Albany Times Union, I believe, was uh, one of the outlets that kind of broke the story here. Uh, So they have some people working on the inside, uh, or are familiar with the situation. I don't know about working on the inside still here, but I'm going to read a little bit from it here. Um, High-level members of the State Department of Health were directed last year by Governor Cuomo and Health Commissioner Dr. Howard Zucker to conduct prioritized coronavirus testing on the governor's relatives as well as influential people with ties to the administration, according to three people with direct knowledge of the matter. So clearly they have some sources. Um, they include his uh, famous uh, CNN host brother, Chris Cuomo, his mother, Matilda, and at least one of the sisters. Uh, and they, again, these were, uh, the tests were administered by, uh, in, the, in, the, in the reporting here, by Dr. Eleanor Adams, an epidemiologist who graduated from Harvard Medical School, so very qualified to uh, administer those tests, um, at the direction of the Department of Health. So early on in this pandemic, uh, I don't see dates here specifically, and maybe the dates have come to... Uh, uh, to light here in another article. I don't see them here listed in this Times Union article, but this appears early on in the pandemic when testing was uh, scarce and really needed in facilities that were having issues, uh, as we've talked about for months and weeks here, um, 
at nursing home facilities specifically were looking for tests to better isolate and serve their patients. And all the while, our governor, winning his, while his Emmy award-winning governor was uh, basically lining up his family and moving them to the front of the line to make sure that uh, they were tested uh, before those people who were actually probably you know, in much more need of a test than Matilda. So, um, well, maybe the sister, maybe Matilda maybe needed the test. I think she's in her eighties. So, um, I don't know. I think this is kind of just being, I know that some of the, uh, and, and it wasn't just his family too, like the, the, uh, the executive director of the port authority and him and his wife, they got tested. The, uh, the head of the MTA tested. So, and there were some state legislators and members of the media and some of the stuff may have been, uh, uh, at the risk of, uh, you know, being precautious of possible uh, exposures. But it seems as though this was more of a directed to kind of make sure that the family was safe here. Uh, obviously, the administration uh, spokespeople have come out and said this was uh, not nefarious at all, uh, that these, these were, you know, basically trying to address potential exposures. And, you know, this this was just, you know, standard operating procedure here and, and, and nothing nefarious. So I don't know. I, I think it's going to be added to the investigation, if you will. I mean, it doesn't look good. Uh, I don't think Chris Cuomo needed a prioritized test. I mean, I'm sure CNN could probably get him a prioritized test. And if that was the thing or somebody else, right? Like, I don't need to think that there was clearly a priority needed and Chris Cuomo wasn't on it. So um, I don't know. We'll see how this develops. Um, but it's getting, it's getting some traction a little bit here. And again, we can just add this to the list of, uh, of uh, other scandals and, 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 and such that's going on, obviously with the sexual harassment allegations, the nursing home deaths, all of it. So um, those investigations are ongoing. Uh, there's multiple investigations by the AG, by the, uh, the, the assembly. So um, obviously we'll keep you updated as we get those, but add this to the list. So the latest, the latest and greatest of uh, the, uh, the, the roll call of uh, investigations or allegations into the Cuomo administration. So um I don't know, but the big news I feel like in New York uh, has kind of dominated the news uh, for a while here, and I wish I had Mr. Hughesong here because I don't really know some of his uh, life experiences with the cannabis uh, or any of this stuff here, so uh, maybe I'll have to fill in the blanks a little bit um, uh, when next time we meet here. Um, Recreational weed for adult use will be legal uh, sometime this week, we think, uh, in New York State. I think they're going to vote on this as early as tomorrow, Tuesday. Uh, but the bill has been introduced. The It was kind of uh, leaked a little bit uh, that there was, there was a deal, uh, and then it basically didn't happen for a few days, so people thought the deal was breaking down. But the deal is in place. The deal has been out. Uh, so I want to kind of go over that with you guys. Uh, this has been something that has been, uh, you know, in, in discussions here in New York State for a few years, uh, last year it was brought up. Uh, they tried to, Cuomo tried to get it into the budget uh, that failed to get into the budget, and then they did not pass a standalone piece of legislation to uh, legalize then. Uh, so it basically stood a year's time now, and here we are moving back to uh, to an hour twenty twenty one now. You know, the, 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 we'll go through the, the bill here in a bit, but I think the general sense was that hey, New York State is certain financially, and this is a way to generate some uh, revenue for the state which is probably the least attractive reason to legalize anything as revenue. Um, I guess we'll take it where we can get it if you're in favor. Um, but there, there are other reasons that probably should have been at the top of the list other than just uh, revenue and maybe be the hurting of the state budget is uh, the thing that put it over the edge. But 
Um, so let's break a little bit of this down here. I'm going to pull up an article by uh, um, Dan Clark. Uh, he kind of broke this down pretty good, so I want to give him a little bit of credit here. He is with uh, uh, NPR here, or it's listed on NPR, but um, I saw him on Twitter here. But let me pull up the article. New York State set to legalize marijuana. Vote could come Tuesday, which is tomorrow. Today is Monday. It says New York will legalize marijuana for adult recreational use after Democrats struck a deal on the issue Saturday with a vote expected next week for the state legislature. Um, this is uh, the, the bill that was sponsored by uh, Assembly uh, Majority Leader uh, Crystal Peoples-Stokes, the uh, Democrat from Buffalo, and uh, State Senator Liz Kruger, the Democrat from Manhattan. So those are the two sponsors of the uh, bill, the Assembly and the, and the Senate. So let's hear what let's re, kind of read through some of what this uh, bill is going to offer New Yorkers. Um, as you guys know, uh, we are we do have medical marijuana already legal in New York State. Uh, no smoking of the plant, I believe, is still in effect. Uh, so basically, it's all edibles or concentrates, um, and you can either you know vape vape the uh, the drug or or the the, the plant or the uh, or use it in a in a in a food based product or drinkable. Um, but there's no smoking and obviously some of this is think is going to change here. So let's go through some of the, uh, uh, so right off the top, they're going to create an office of the cannabis management, which sounds horrible to me, uh, at the state level and a cannabis control budget to promulgate regulations related to the drug. Uh, Cuomo, Cuomo would appoint three appointees to the board, including the chairperson while the legislature would have two. Um, so if there's going to be this board, uh, Great. Another level, another layer of state bureaucracy put on top of a a plant. And these folks, these five folks apparently here are going to help us uh, create regulations uh, to keep us safe from the plant that no one has ever died from. Um, Let's move on a little bit here. Set a 13% tax rate on retail sales of cannabis products. Uh, 9% of that would go to the state. 4% would go to the direct uh, directed to the localities. Um, of that 4% directed to localities, counties would receive quarter of that revenue while the municipality would receive the remainder. So it looks as though, uh, and maybe I'm reading here, I, I had thought that the counties were going to be able to opt in, opt out for this program. And it looks like it's not going to be the counties. It's going to be the municipalities. So the towns and the cities, um, villages, whatnot, I'm not sure. Uh, and the a quarter of that revenue would go to the county um, from the the, the, the sales tax uh, for the locality. So uh, I do believe that there is going to be, there's a, a period of time where these municipalities will be able to opt in or opt out. Uh, let's keep moving on here with the, with the article. Uh, so here's some of the, uh, I don't know, the, the things that people were kind of really talking about, what was, what was going to be in the, in the meat of the bill here. So permit possession of three ounces of the drug and 24 grams of concentrate outside the home. So if you are outside of your home in your car, you're at the, I don't know, I guess uh, any place where they have deemed uh, any municipality where they have deemed this uh, to be legal, or they have opted in, you're allowed uh, three ounces of the of, of cannabis and 24 grams of concentrate. So that's outside the home. Inside the home, five pounds. Five pounds is allowed to ke- be kept at home, but must be stored away from children. So if you have kids, you're gonna have to figure out a way to lock that up, store it away. Uh, but five pounds in the home, three ounces outside the home. So those are some of the possession uh, legalities uh, there. I'm not sure what the penalties are for being over those amounts in any time. Um, I'm not sure how you get the five pounds to your house if you can't have it someplace else first, unless you're just growing it within. We'll get to there. Um, redefine criminal penalties for possession. 
right? So um, this was also some of the uh, also some of the uh, the discussion of what was going to be in this bill, and maybe this was some of the last couple things that were going to be uh, discussed as they as they as they pass this final piece of legislation here. So redefine criminal penalties for possession. Possessing more than three ounces of the drug, the drug grams. Oh, here we go. We get the penalties right here. Um, or drug grams of concentrate outside the home would constitute a misdemeanor charge. The most stringent charge would be a Class D felony for possession of more than 10 pounds of the drugs or concentrate products weighing more than four pounds. So there you have it. So I've, here we go. I didn't even read through this whole part, or I missed this part anyway. Um, so if you have, you can be a, a, a Class D felony for possession of more than 10 pounds of the drug. Um, so five pounds is legal, okay, in your house. After that, um, there's penalties. Uh, looks like some of them are misdemeanors, and then uh, when you get to the 10 pounds, it's a Class D felony. Um, allow individuals to grow up to six marijuana plants at home. Half of them would have to be immature, and households would have to be would be capped at 12 plants. So I thought I read it was three plants per adult, which I guess would this would equal out to um, three adult plants per home for, per adult in the home. So if you have uh, two adults in the home, you can grow six mature plants and six immature plants. So you can obviously have your 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 rotation um, with households being capped at 12 plants. Uh, Authorize a controlled research study into methodologies and technologies that could detect when someone's driving while impaired by a cannabis product. So this was, I think the, the last obstacle for at least releasing the bill to the public, um, or at least that's what it was uh, presented and reported on in the news. It seemed as though uh, driving while impaired on by cannabis was kind of like the, the, the one thing they wanted to be able to kind of t- to nail down here. So apparently there's a um, authorization within this bill that will study the methodologies and technologies that will be, lewd for, be used for like a roadside test, I'm assuming. Um, Let's keep going. Set aside funding for the local enforcement agencies to hire and train drug recognition experts who would be able to recognize when somebody's driving while impaired by the drug. So driving under the influence of marijuana would still be illegal, um, which it is right now. So I don't know if there's this is they're just keeping the current uh, impairment uh, uh, penalties in place. And then they're going to use technology to try to further that when get when given a chance. It seems like that might be the case here. Uh, give municipalities, excluding counties, the ability to opt out of allowing retail sales and state-approved consumption sites. The deadline to do this would be December 31st, 2021. So they had to the end of the year. So any one of these municipalities, so the city of Syracuse, they can say, okay, well, we're not going to do this here. Uh, I'm assuming it would be the same as the town of Cicero or the town of Clay or the town of Manlius or any of these. Um, if they opt in, then they're eligible for that 4% sales tax on that revenue and a quarter of that. So I guess 1% would be going to the County, which would be here in Onondaga County. Um, expand the list of medical conditions to qualify for medical marijuana and provide some flexibility for practitioners to prescribe the drug for conditions that aren't specifically listed. Well, if it's allowed, it's allowed for recreational. I mean, people are going to get it one way or the other. So expanding these medical conditions seems like a no brainer to me. Um, Direct 40% of total state tax revenue from cannabis to a grant program for communities historically disproportionately impacted by prohibition. Another 40% would go toward the state schools, with the remainder set aside for drug treatment and education. So you got 40% going to uh, a grant program. You got 40% going to towards state schools, which the remainder, uh, 20% here, uh, would be uh, set aside for drug treatment and education. All right. 
automatically expunge or resentence individuals convicted of criminal charges related to marijuana that would be repealed under the legislation. So basically saying if you had a possession conviction that that would be expunged. If you had certain things that would no longer be illegal under this current piece of this new piece of legislation, you would no longer have to be in jail serving penalty for something that is now legal. Um, I did see there, they talked about resentencing people. So maybe if there's multiple crimes, multiple uh, charges against this individual, where one or two of them may be uh, marijuana related, they might be resentenced those. And obviously then, um, you know, I'm assuming that the time served would be allocated or, 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 or appointed and they would be able to uh, change that, that, that sentence. So, uh, and then last year on this list of uh, bullet points here is allow the creation of on-site consumption sites, sort of how tasting rooms work with alcohol. Um, so that's interesting too. So you could have, uh, you know, if you have, uh, boutique growers. Uh, I wonder if they will be allowed to have a sitting area where you can come in and try their different varieties, uh, try the different strains, see what they like, um, and kind of uh, like you do with tasting rooms, right? So you can go to kind of like a bourbon tasting room. You can have a, a beer tasting room, a wine tasting room where you can go in. You can kind of sample each one of these products before you take home what you really like there. So, so that's that's from this article, which I thought was really good. Uh, kind of broke down the legalization of marijuana here in New York State and and the bill that's that that has been introduced. Um, it seems as though I did, uh, I didn't see this listed here, but I did see that. So for home grow, so we talked about how you can grow three plants per adult or six, uh, total of 12 plants in, in your home that only can happen. You can only begin growing when the dispensaries are allowed to open, um, unless you're a medical marijuana. But so if you're medical marijuana, you can begin growing immediately, I believe, if you, as soon as the bill is passed, not immediately, but as soon as the bill is passed, you can start, you can begin growing your home, own plants there if you are a medical card carrier in New York State. If you are not, you must wait for the dispensaries to open, which could be upwards of 18 months. So if you're thinking about, you know, tomorrow when they sign this bill to plant your seeds, be aware that uh, uh, that is technically not within the uh, framework of this piece of, of, of this, this bill here and that you would be in violation. I'm sure that somebody found out they would come and not be happy about that and take your plants. I'm guessing. Um, but so that's kind of what's going on in New York here, right? So we got this, uh, um, this is kind of like been a, I think a long time coming. We're the 16th state, I believe to recreational. Well, we will be the 16th state if this the bill pass, um, think it will. Uh, I don't know. No, I think everybody else thinks it will. Um, so we'll be the 16th state with recreational marijuana. I think this has kind of been long overdue. Uh, again, I, I'm not really a big fan of uh, the reasons why it was uh, uh, thing. I'd rather the, uh, the, hey, I'm an adult and I can do what I want to do in my own home with my own life, my own body here. Uh, 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 take is probably the better uh, reason to, uh, to to legalize here. If, if you're not hurting anybody and if you're not causing any problems, in the privacy of your own home, well, you can do what you want. So, um, all right. So, obviously, I'm, I've gone through my list of uh, topics here. So, now I want to kind of promote some stuff that we have going on here that I think is pretty exciting. So, uh, right after I end the show here, uh, hopefully Mr. Husong will be here for this, we have uh, uh, a couple guests coming back. We have one guest today, one guest tomorrow. Today's guest, senior fellow researcher at the American Institute for Economic Research, Phil Magnus, we had him back on in October to discuss lockdowns and see and their effectiveness and see how they uh, how well they worked. So we're going to have him back on. We're going to have him back on to discuss uh, if anything has changed. Has new data come in? Again, this was uh, we talked to him in October, so we can kind of fast forward a few months here and see if 
we went through a whole lockdown 2.0 here across the country, including right here in New York State. Um, and we'll be able to uh, assess uh, more data and see if the lockdowns are still working, not working, uh, and to what degree they're working. But the reason I brought him back on is if you guys, uh, he published a recent article. Let me pull up that article because it's, it's awesome. But anyway, so um, it's called The Many Variants of Fauci's Mutating COVID Advice. Uh, and this was released on March 23rd, 2021. So I'm going to talk to Mr. Magnus about this article. He basically breaks down how uh, Dr. Fauci uh, is a man of the political moment. Whatever he needs in the moment, he is a way of narrating uh, his responses to exactly what he needs uh, at that time. So um, I, think the, uh, the, I think the article is worth discussing with Mr. Magnus. So we will have him on uh, later this afternoon to talk about that and break down uh, his, his take on uh, Fauci's ever mutating uh, COVID advice. And then also tomorrow, uh, again, I'm not sure exactly when these interviews will actually be posted for you guys to view, but this is when we're doing the interview. So Mr. Magnus is today. Mr. Bill Hammond will be coming back on the show. Uh, if you remember him, he is the health advisor or the senior uh, health director for the Empire Center. Um, and we're going to talk uh, about his continued reporting on the Greater New York Hospital Association and their relationship, it's a lobbying firm for the hospitals here, and their relationship with our governor and how uh, influential they are at getting basically pieces of, uh, pieces of legislation written on their behalf and uh, introduced by the governor uh, into, into the uh, state, state uh, legislature. So um, we're going to talk to Mr. Magnus and Mr. Hammond over here the next couple of days. I'm guessing I'll have both those interviews out and um, uh, to you guys, uh, full videos, maybe by Thursday. Um, and then what we'll do is, because Ben, ben we'll have Ben uh, back for next week, and we'll break down uh, some of the highlights from those interviews on next week's show um, for episode 44 here. So uh, I'm really looking forward to both of those. Uh, I can't wait to talk to Mr. Magnus about Dr. Fauci. He, I don't think he's much of a fan, neither am I, so this should go well. Um, and uh, Mr. Hammond is obviously, I, I'm, I basically think they should name a road after Mr. Hammond someplace uh, in Albany, just so that the governor's office should always be able to see his name and know that, uh, just for his efforts. I mean, I, I don't agree with Mr. Hammond on everything, but his relentlessness at pursuing uh, information from the state is should be commended. Um, and like I said, right now he is working on making sure we are all well aware, uh, how much influence and how much, uh, uh, power the greater New York hospital association has over New York politics right now. And I want to discuss that with Mr. Hammond. So with that, we're only at 30 minutes here and I apologize for a short show, but this is how it is when you only have half the guests, right? You get half the talk time. Um, we will be back next Monday. It will be back uh, for episode 44. Again, we'll break down some of these interviews that we're going to do the next couple of days uh, and cover all the things that uh, are happening here in the, the great state of New York. So uh, with that, I'm going to leave you here, uh, leave you rest of your lunch here to, uh, I don't know, listen to music or do something else other than listen to my, uh, my, my, my rambling voice here. So on that note, I want to thank you all for, uh, uh, for tuning in for episode 43. Be sure to... Check back here uh, later in the week. Uh, again, hit that notification bell if you uh, haven't already done so, and then you'll get notified when I release those uh, interviews here with uh, Phil Magnus from the American Institute of Economic Research and Bill Hammond from the Empire Center later in the week. And with that, uh, see you next week. 
I want to welcome back friend of the show and economic historian, currently serving as senior research fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. His latest piece we're going to talk about here breaks down the ever so nuanced positions of Dr. Anthony Fauci's lady and gentleman, Phil Magnus. Mr. Magnus, welcome back to Sports, Clicks, and Politics. Uh, thank you for uh, giving us some of your time. Did, did I see you recently you're in Texas? I am. Uh, yeah, that's uh, been a, a short business trip down to the Lone Star State, or as I say, uh, these days, the uh, the free part of the country. I, I love it. I'm jealous. I said we're still stuck up here in New York, which is not the opposite, the reciprocal of uh, Texas at this point. So um, before we jump into the uh, more your most recent article here, uh, when we had you back on in October, we were kind of breaking down whether or not we thought the uh, lockdown measures that were in place in some of these parts of the uh, of our state and uh, the country and in the world, whether or not they were actually doing any good, working, uh, doing as they were uh, uh, billed us as uh, to help stop spread uh, the virus. Uh, has anything changed or has there been any new information that kind of uh, either confirms your position or has uh, you've been reassessed that lockdown position? Well, that's the fascinating thing. I think the last time we talked, uh, the big uh, line that was coming out of the epidemiology profession, or at least its pro-lockdown side, was this claim that uh, lockdowns were a thing of the past. They were something we did in the spring and they worked. And uh, it was now a straw man to even bring that specter up again. Uh, That was the big narrative back in uh, September, October, November of last year. And then large parts of the world uh, locked down again for the uh, the fall and winter wave. We saw that in Europe. We saw that in several states again in the United States. And it turned out that uh, the winter wave seemed to happen more or less as uh, it would have anyway. Uh, we can compare parts of the country and uh, different nations around the world that went into a second lockdown against those that did not throughout the fall and winter wave, and basically the results are the same. There's no evidence that uh, these measures were effective at stemming the tide of the virus, and in fact, many of the places that locked down a second or a third time had much worse records in the uh, in the more recent wave than places that did not. And, and when we talked last, it, it was uh, just recently the Great Barrington Declaration had been um, put out, and you guys were kind of instrumental in helping facilitate that there at the uh, American Institute for Economic Research. Um, and we, like I said, it had just kind of been out there when we talked. Uh, at, at the time, it was uh, there was quite a uh, an acceptance from you know tens of thousands of uh, uh, health and medical professionals, but the uh, Twitter world and the uh, the uh, folks who were pro lockdown seemed to uh, push back immediately. That doesn't seem to have gone anywhere. It seems more that they have uh, really just tried to tear down the, the Great Barrington Declarations uh, ever since it's been launched. Uh, kind of, uh, what's been your experience, uh, kind of working closely with that group? Well, it's been depressing to see the state of the scientific conversation. When we launched the Great Barrington Declaration, I think it was a genuine hope of all three scientists that were involved, and then the uh, many thousands of other scientists that signed on that this would provoke a much-needed scientific conversation, scientific debate over the effectiveness of lockdowns, the costs that are associated with lockdowns, and other strategies, other approaches we could take uh, to dealing with the pandemic after several months of the lockdown approach being tried and failing over and over again. Uh, We didn't get that conversation, unfortunately, because uh, people that were wedded to the earlier uh, uh, version of the policy would have nothing of it. They were uh, path-dependent 
on continuing to repeat and do the same thing that they had tried and failed at in the fall, tried and failed at again in the, the summer, and now have tried and failed at uh, uh, through the second wave of the virus. Uh, so what it really quick, quickly turned into was uh, not a scientific dialogue, but uh, one of the most bizarre and extreme vilification campaigns I've ever witnessed on a, um, a matter of, uh, of public policy, uh, even to the point that uh, the dominant response we got from ostensibly well-respected, highly regarded, accomplished epidemiologists on the pro-lockdown side uh, delved right into outright conspiracy theory. Uh, there was a claim going around at one point that the Koch brothers had paid uh, us off to uh, issue the Great Barrington De Declaration, which is completely false. That morphed into another claim that the uh, British Ministry of Defense uh, supposedly had some uh, bizarre financial uh, contact uh, to some webmaster that was alleged to have uh, created our website, even though the guy lives in Wales and had absolutely nothing to do with us. Uh, and these are being put out by uh, supposedly mainstream epidemiologists at Duke University and Harvard and Yale and uh, other elite institutions that are supposed to be scientific communicators um, on this particular issue. But instead, what they were doing is they were playing the politics of vilification to try to discredit any challenge to the policy that they had settled on back in the spring and have not deviated away from. It's just a sad state of affairs at this point. Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, we talked about lockdowns and the cost of lockdowns. So a two-part question. Overall deaths in the United States, what do they look like? And then if you break it down by age, how much of this could be attributed to the lockdowns versus how much could be attributed to COVID? I don't expect exact numbers, but just general ideas. Right, right. So it's a really tricky question to break down uh, the deaths uh, on actually where they're coming from. What we do know is this disease has a very pronounced age gradient. In other words, what it means is it's, it's really not uh, all that uh, severe for uh, most younger and healthier people, but it gets very, very severe as you advance up in age and also uh, – Aging comes with other medical issues, medical conditions, referred to as comorbidities. So uh, you start to get into the territory of uh, 65 plus, 70 plus. Uh, it's a really serious disease. This is why we emphasize vaccination should be prioritized for people in those age demographics and people with other uh, medical conditions. Uh, yet if, it, if you're talking about something like a, a, a school-aged child, uh, or a college student, uh, the risk of a severe case of COVID is uh, is actually very small. We see this in the CDC's own numbers. Uh, so just assessing that, that automatically tells us that a, a general one-size-fits-all approach to uh, dealing with the pandemic through society, i.e. shutting it down, is probably not suitable for this disease. In fact, it's very mistaken in the way that we've, uh, we've gone about addressing this disease. Uh, so just based on the data that we know, uh, we find that lockdowns are a very blunt instrument that's probably not uh, um, well designed to even do what it claims to do. Yeah, and like I said, I know we have uh, we mentioned you being in Texas, and obviously we have uh, instances place like uh, state of Florida compared to where we are in New York. So, do we have is there economic debt? I mean, is there is it too soon to kind of compare the states yet to say, hey, you know? Florida handled it completely different than some of the states up up, up in right. like the Northeast, and is there a way to kind of differentiate their economic outcomes at this point? 
Well, just in social sciences in general, the one thing that we always look for are counterfactuals. And it's a really tricky area to isolate and pick the correct counterfactuals. There's all sorts of uh, statistical methods to do this. But uh, if we look for two or more areas of the country or two or more countries themselves that use very different policies, uh, we can see natural experiments emerging in the real world uh, by putting them side by side to see what happened. And uh, you can kind of eyeball it uh, uh, throughout the pandemic. You can also run sophisticated uh, statistical models to show uh, uh, more precisely fine-tuned cases of this around specific events. But one thing that we are seeing, especially through the second wave, is that states like Florida, which remain completely open, states like Texas, which uh, were relatively open, and then toward the second uh, uh, wave's tail end, they started to very rapidly re uh, reopen. This was the uh, Governor Abbott's order uh, from the beginning of the month, where he, uh, he basically voided all of the previous existing coronavirus restrictions. And yet you have other places like New York and California that have either remained locked down or have been very slow uh, to relax their restrictions, um, although Gavin Newsom was taking some heat, Mario Cuo or uh, Andrew Cuomo is taking heat, so they've, uh, they've actually started to back away from some of those. But still, they've been much slower to re relax their restrictions than places like Texas and Florida. But if you overlay these states against each other, you see that they all had basically the same course during the second wave, and in fact, New York and California were doing much worse on several metrics, in addition to basically obliterating their economies. Uh, so unemployment tends to be much worse in places like California and New York than these other locales that had more or less the same or better experience with weathering the coronavirus, but didn't destroy their economies in the same way. Yeah, and obviously we're, we're experiencing that firsthand. I guess we're about maybe two or three uh, sexual harassment charges against our governor away from maybe a, a removing of the mask mandate. So we got that to look forward to. Exactly. <laughs> All right, so let's move to, to your uh, article, uh, The Many Variants of Fauci's Mutating COVID Advice. Uh, I, I have been paying attention to your critique of Dr. Fauci along the way. I, I share in it uh, a lot of what you say. Like, it feel like no matter what questions he's asked, he can answer it. He's answering it on both sides of every, or he has two answers to every question, uh, so he can kind of make sure that he's right in the long run or wrong in the long run. It doesn't really matter. Like, he just covers his bases, I guess. Um, in your article, you talk about his, uh, his messaging around reinfection and, uh, and, and relation masks. So let, let's go back. Let's talk to, about Fauci early on in the pandemic and talk about reinfection and then how that has uh, changed through the, the course of time here. Yeah. So Fauci, very early on, he was actually um, fairly sound on the science about the possibility of reinfection. Some of his first comments um, on the issue, and this dates all the way back to like last March and April, uh, people were asking, well, if you get the disease and you recover, uh, what are the chances of having immunity? And Fauci stuck to fairly doctrinaire epidemiology, which says that, uh, you know, for most respiratory viruses of this nature, and in fact, other previous coronaviruses that we know about, there is at least some lasting immunity into the medium term. We don't know for certain that it's going to be a year or five years or 10 years with a new virus. That's simply not the, uh, uh, the, the nature of how science advances. But we do know from previous experience that immunity is, in fact, likely at least for some degree of time, and Fauci was uh, outright stating this back in March and April of 2020. 
Um, that was a, a message that he adhered to. He even made uh, several claims on, uh, on uh, you know, nationally syndicated uh, news broadcasts and press conferences where people asked him about, can you get reinfected from the coronavirus? And he said, it's extremely unlikely, and uh, if it happens, it will only be very rare, uh, basically odd cases that have some other medical complications, such as a, a compromised immune system, may be very susceptible to becoming uh, reinfected. But for the, the, the normal person, for the average person, reinfection is not a huge risk. And so how is that different than what he's telling us uh, today as the vaccine was being rolled out? Well, he's pivoted his message throughout the last year, and I document this in the article, and it's not just changing his message once or twice, it's changing it dozens of times, often only weeks or days apart. And Tauchi stuck to that message uh, originally of, of kind of discounting the notion of reinfection being uh, a major or severe threat uh, through most of the spring and summer of 2020, then around... Uh, uh, the early fall, so September, October, right around the time that the Great Barrington Declaration was coming out and some of those messages uh, were starting to be offered uh, around herd immunity as a uh, an alternative basis for a strategy than lockdowns, Fauci pivoted in the way that he was uh, depicting the risk of reinfection. So even though he had been downplaying it for most of the spring and summer, he starts changing his message and pointing out those uh, obscure, rare cases where somebody was confirmed to have had a reinfection, and then uh, really casting the seed of doubt and says, well, we don't know about herd immunity because uh, there's this one case that we read about from Europe where uh, an elderly Dutch lady, uh, I think she was an 89-year-old Dutch lady uh, with advanced leukemia and a severely compromised immune system had uh, been confirmed to get uh, a second round of COVID after recovering and unfortunately died of it. Uh, so he trotted out that study as if it was now uh, the specter of reinfection was the reason why we can't rely on a herd immunity-oriented um, strategy that's an alternative to the lockdowns. Uh, so we already had his pivot, and the pivot was strictly political, not because of the changing science. It's he needed a new line of argument to rebuff the Great Barrington Declaration, rebuff the herd immunity science that was being put forth as an alternative to his control of the uh, the, the, the political narrative. So Dr. Fauci said that the uh, the South African variant in particular, it appears as if they're – the South African variant, you could get that as if you had no immunity whatsoever. That was the rough language you used, especially for right. older people. Right. I found that to be misleading, to say the least. Um, but like most things, there's a kernel of truth in what he says, and then it's just right. expounded upon far too much, far too many assumptions that are then included. Could you go through that a little bit? Yeah, so uh, the South African variant, uh, you know, was discovered in the last few months, and this is what viruses do. They, they mutate, even though it's the same virus. It has uh, uh, different features to the genetic uh, code that go into it, and they, uh, um, they play out slightly differently in different populations. Uh, what Fauci did was he took some studies that, uh, that occurred uh, very early in 2021. They came out in January, February, uh, and March where they looked at the possibility of reinfection in the South African variant. And one of the studies found a single case of an individual who had previously been infected last year with some other variant of the coronavirus and came down with it again a second time. 
Uh, so one single case, and the study was very guarded in its language. It said uh, we actually need to investigate this further. Uh, we don't know if this is a common thing. We've just found one case, and it shows that this is something we should look into. And it actually sounds a lot like some of the previous uh, studies that occurred in the fall where they found reinfections such as the elderly Dutch lady. Uh, a couple other uh, cases have been found there, the, where reinfection has indeed occurred, but it's extremely rare. And then there was a second study that came out, and this was connected to uh, one of the, uh, the the virus vaccine trials. And it found suggested evidence that a very small minority of people that went through the trials may have been reinfected, although it didn't have as high of a, a level of, uh, of rigor to, uh, to, to differentiate that, because you need testing uh, both in between the two times that the person was infected uh, to see that they truly recovered, and it's not just like a latent case that's carrying over. But this study also suggested, yes, there may be a small minority that, uh, that is susceptible to reinfection from the South African variant. Fauci took that, goes on CNN and says, well, people are getting reinfected all over the place. Uh, uh, South Africa is telling us that you have no immunity, you have no protection uh, if you had it previously and you are exposed to this new, new variant. So he took a very uh, narrow, measured scientific claim and wildly exaggerated it in apocalyptic directions and did so at a time when he's making the case of why we still need to wear masks, why we still need to have lockdowns, still need to have social distancing restrictions. So again, it's his message pivoting uh, another time just to affirm the political positions that he wants to maintain. And so he mentioned that South uh, African variant uh, in an in, uh, engagement with Dr. Rand Paul. Uh, he used that as the uh, reason why it's uh, kind of to defend uh, Dr. Paul's assertion that masks are theater. Um, Especially I think somebody who's been vaccinated and who, or who had it and recovered. Right. So, I, I think his messaging around masks has kind of shifted along the way too. Obviously, we're we're well aware of his uh, uh, early uh, early uh, uh, interview where he basically said, you know, people, uh, you know, shouldn't be wearing masks, and then obviously a change there. So, other than that, I mean, he's clearly uh, gone to the double masks, the triple masks, um, you know. Uh, what's been your assessment of uh, Fauci's uh, assessment of mask wearing in general? Well, it, it's almost a point of comical absurdity now. Uh, you know, we, he was very public in stating that uh, masks were not effective. There was no evidence behind them. Uh, this was the, the, the famous 60 Minutes interview he gave last March. Uh, and he was uh, not only just saying that uh, maybe we should hold off on the mask till the science comes in. He's saying, no, we have no science behind uh, masks that says that they are necessary. And then he completely completely changes course on that in a matter of months when that becomes the new political narrative. Uh, mask mandates suddenly become like the, the magic bullet that's going to stop uh, coronavirus from surging again in the fall. Therefore, we all needed to enact them, and Fauci changed his messaging, even admitted that he, uh, uh, well, he claims now that uh, he lied in the original uh, commentary that he made uh, on masks uh, uh, back in, uh, in last March because he thought that there was a shortage at the hospitals. He said, well, I told the noble lie to the public because I wanted to make sure that hospitals had enough masks. And that already has eth ethical questions associated with it because it's casting doubt on public health advice. It's misleading people, uh, even if it's supposedly being done for a, for a noble purpose, as he claimed. Uh, and yet we've seen this play out throughout the the year. The uh, uh, messaging from Fauci shifted again uh, from not just one mask to two masks. 
and he rode that for a little while. He started appearing in public with uh, multiple masks on. I think that happened after the famous baseball game incident when he was caught sitting in the stand without a mask. Uh, you know, he, he switched from that to two masks. And then there was a brief point, I think it was in the in January 2021, when he said, well, maybe two masks aren't necessary. We need to go back to one mask. And that lasted about a week. Then a new CDC study came out pushing uh, the two-mask solution, and he's, it's been like an upward trajectory ever since. Uh, but again, uh, it, it's, it's a guy who has no consistency to his scientific message. Quite the contrary, what he's doing is he's pivoting it around uh, as the politics need uh, him to, and as he needs to make a specific argument to keep one of these measures in place that uh, he's really staked his political career on. <coughs> God bless me. you. Um, so I don't know if you looked into this at all. Back there in the days of SARS-CoV-1, uh, 15 years ago, 16 years ago, Australia actually threatened to fine businesses if they started over-promising on the effectiveness of masks at stopping right. transmission. I, we saw measures like that in several places in the world. I, I think even for a, for a moment in Germany, they had restrictions on on, on people that were uh, uh, trying to enforce masks, like back in the spring. And that shifted not only to a mask mandate, but then uh, some parts of Germany they were using N95 mask mandates. Uh, so it, it's been all over the map on this. The science has been all over the place. Does it ever feel like we're we're playing for the one percent exception at all times instead of the ninety nine percent odds of like look the mask that I wear literally says right on the warning label will not stop transmission of COVID. I, why am I wearing this thing like for the one percent of of particles that it's going to stop? I, same with lockdown. Same with yeah. all of this stuff. Like, well, we don't know about asymptomatic spread. It could happen. We don't know about children transmitting. It could happen. We don't know about reinfection. It could happen. Like, yeah, but why are we not playing for the 99% odds? Why is every public policy decision coming out as the 1% exception? Well, this is the science of speculation that has characterized Fauci's career, not only through coronavirus, but going back decades when he assumed uh, uh, his current position at the NIH, which I think was in 1983. I mean, here's a guy that's been in office for 40 years and is the highest paid bureaucrat in the entire federal government, makes more money than the president. Uh there's a reason that someone like that stays around for so long, and it's not because they're a great scientist. It's because they're a great politician. I kind of liken him to a J. Edgar Hoover type of a figure <laughs> more than a, a Nobel Prize winning scientist. He's someone who knows how to navigate a half dozen presidential administrations and not only navigate them but to continue rising in power and salary and authority until he gets all the way up to the top. And we know this from... Fauci's earliest public forays into uh, epidemiology came from the AIDS crisis in the early 1980s. Uh, so I looked into this uh, oh, a, a few months job. ago. Yeah, you know, he he was the NIH's point man, uh, spokesman on AIDS. And if you look at his public rhetoric back then, it's the exact same pattern we've seen in the coronavirus, where he goes out and he makes. Uh, uh, increasingly speculative statements, bold statements that are based on maybe a kernel of scientific evidence or, uh, or or some speculation about some scientific evidence, but he presents them to the public as if this is the fact, this is the authority that's coming out of the government. And it turns out later that that speculation was wrong, 
and yet he, he never takes accountability for it. He just pivots his message to something completely different. Uh, the famous example being in 1983, he wrote an article speculating that AIDS could be transmitted by regular household contact from, uh, you know, if you had a, a cousin or an uncle or a brother or sister living in your household and they were sitting around the dinner table, they might be able to transmit AIDS to you. We now know this is complete scientific nonsense, complete bunk. But Fauci wrote this horrendously irresponsible article in the Journal of the Medical uh, American Medical Association in 1983 where he said uh, it might be possible to transmit AIDS through household contact, and if that happens, all hell is going to break loose. Uh, this is picked up in the press, and what does the New York Times, the Associated Press, all these other newspapers do the next day? Uh, they run a headline, Fauci announces that AIDS transmits in the household. Jeez. It turns out to be completely false. A month later, when he's questioned about it, it's he, it's not, oh, I was in error, I, I made a mistake about the science. He just completely contra contradicts himself and pretends as if he has never said that. Uh, but meanwhile, the cat's out of the bag, uh, uh, the mythology of AIDS being uh, transmissible through household contacts has already spread around the country, and now you have a political problem based on the misinformation that he's never held to account for. I feel like that led to like uh, 10 years of people hovering over toilets. <laughs> exactly. That was exactly it. And Fauci is one of the main persons to blame for that. And, and real quick, piggybacking on his moral lie uh, idea. So didn't he do the same thing with like the herd immunity number where he was uh, basically yeah. saying that he was going to try to pump up the, 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 the percentage needed to so that uh, people would get the vaccination? Right. So uh, when the vaccines were announced back in, uh, in mid-November, uh, you know, Fauci, who for the previous two months had been saying, well, reinfections may uh, cause herd immunity to uh, to not exist. Reinfections may threaten the strategy. He suddenly dropped all of that rhetoric for a couple of weeks and said, well, we'll reach herd immunity once we get 70 to 80 percent of the population vaccinated. That's our threshold. And people were like, OK, well, the end's in sight. We just get the vaccine out and distribute it and uh, and we can get rid of all these mandates and, and lockdowns and masks. And Fauci's rhetoric actually kind of hinted at that. Uh, that lasted for like three or four weeks. And then uh, I think it was mid-December, he came out with another press conference where he said, you know, I was telling you 70 to 80 percent uh, a few weeks ago, but what I really meant was 90 percent. And the only reason I said 70 to 80 percent is uh, I was trying to nudge the public into greater acceptance of vaccines. But I really meant 90 percent all along. And I was just telling you a noble lie to get you there, to get you on board with my message. And people are hearing this. And it's like, wait a minute. This isn't a noble lie. You sound like you're just moving the goalposts for political reasons. Uh, so that lasted through December. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, in, in, in late January or early February, he shifts again. And that's where we got the latest round of rhetoric where the South African variant is suddenly going to bring reinfections back onto the scene again. Uh, so he went from reinfections are not a thing a year ago to reinfections are a threat uh, around the time of the Great Barrington Declaration to reinfections are not a thing again after the, the, the vaccines came out to doubling down that they were not a thing again uh, uh, by late December to uh, his latest round with Rand Paul, where he's asserting the reinfections are, again, a specter and an existential threat to uh, uh, to any repeal of the mandates and mask orders and lockdowns that he's uh, been advocating for the last year or more. Yes. I, listen, I guess this is the question I get asked. I don't even try to stab at an answer because I don't have one. What is the end game of all of this? Like, what <laughs> is the end game? I don't grasp it. I don't get it. I I guess I don't need it because I still can see what is right and what is wrong, what is likely and yeah. what is improbable. 
But I, it would be nice to have some idea of what are we all going for here? Any yeah. thoughts? Well, I think one of the, the, the silver lining is I don't think Fauci has an end game either. He's just kind of making it up as he goes. <laughs> and we've seen this as, uh, through all of his pivoting rhetoric and pivoting rationales. Uh, so we may not know what the end game is, but I don't think he does either, even though he pretends to know. Uh, what I do see happening is going to be outside of the control of government, uh, or it's also going to be uh, relying on what we're seeing right now, and that's the variation in policies between some states that are reopening and others that are not. And uh, that in itself is going to create, again, more natural experiments. I mean, we're seeing Florida and Texas are mostly open right now, and, and they're died, doing right? no worse than anywhere else in the country. And pretty soon that becomes too obvious to deny. You can't sit there and say, uh, well, we need to keep New, New York locked down while people are watching on TV that uh, uh, life has returned to normal in Texas. Yeah, uh, people start asking of, questions about that. I'm hoping a bunch of people who are in New York or from New York who are now in Florida when they come back, they can start uh, at least diffusing the idea that you know a calamity is happening down there because that seems to be the narrative. At any time New York is brought to Florida... Regardless of what reality says, Florida and uh, the, the governor down there is killing everybody, and we're thankful. We, right. we should be thankful to have Governor Cuomo as running you, New York. Do you guys yeah. remember Georgia's experiment with human extinction or whatever it was that the well, Atlanta exactly. right. the human sacrifice. that was April two thousand twenty? Georgia was supposed to be the next hotbed, and it never happened. Meanwhile, Cuomo was killing tens of thousands of people and covering it up in his nursing homes. And suddenly he's the savior. He's the person that did it right. There's another Fauci flip-flop. He's, uh, he announced that New York State was the model that the rest of the country should, should copy and did that at multiple points. Yeah, we haven't heard from him since. That's frustrating, living here. Of, he had no, Dr. Fauci had no issue taking, task, or taking Ron DeSantis to task about it. It's very concerning seeing what's happening. Praising Cuomo's response, Cuomo gets caught red-handed covering up data in the midst of a pandemic and Fauci has no comment. I, it's I'm at it's a very loss. revealing about where the guy is uh, politically. Yeah. I'm just at a loss for words at that point. Like that's just so disingenuous and hypocritical. I, I'm at a loss for words of how anybody can look at that and go, yeah, that seems legit. Makes sense. Yeah. It's fair. <laughs> All right, Mr. Magnus, I mean, we're going to get you out of here. Is there, is there anything that you, you're working on here? It uh, doesn't have to be necessarily COVID-related, but if it is, have at it. Anything you're working on that you want to keep us on the radar about? Well, I say just keep watching uh, what the politicians are doing. Hold their feet to the fire. Um, I am working on some longer-term projects about uh, the pandemic as a failed experiment in central planning. Uh, in other words, lockdowns have a lot in common with uh, what we saw in attempts to centrally plan economies like in the Soviet Union or in uh, Maoist China in the past. And those had horrific, uh, disastrous results of their own right, uh, but what we're seeing is a lot of the same problems play out when you when you try to do pandemic management based on imperfect information and uh, political decision-making that really takes uh, the lead, and that's why uh, why you see things like some of these, uh, these failed uh, imperial college-style COVID models have stayed with us and continued to guide policy for months or even a year after we already knew that they were failing. Uh, there's like a path to pandemic around the political system uh, the same way that the Soviet Union, even though its economy was failing, it lingered on for decades. Uh, I hope the lockdowns don't do the same thing, and I think that there will be uh, faster pushback against them, uh, but you start to see some of the same reasons why failed policies persist, even though everyone knows that they are failing. 
I feel like it's just arrogance on the part of the planners and optimistic ignorance on the part of the followers of, for some reason, we cannot get over the idea that there exists a truly benevolent bureaucrat. Exactly. Exactly. In fact, we lionize them if they're Fauci. (laughs) Exactly. All right, Mr. Magnus, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it, and uh, keep up the good work. And everybody over there at the American Institute of Economic Research, you guys, everybody check them out. So thank you very much. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right.